if you believe in evolution, says a texter, life could evolve on any planet, but does not need to be like human life. Look at the life around the hot sulfur springs in the ocean. Yes, these would be the aliens from the planet Spa. Is there a chance of life emerging in Kuiper Belt, in the Kuiper Belt, like icy situations? Do we catch virus mutations from solar flares? Gee, there's plenty of material for Lisa next time. Jim, neither you nor your guest are involved enough in ufology to know how much acceptance there already is in academia regarding our interactions with advanced non-human intelligence active long-term on this planet. Thank you. Uh, reported on the Slashdot site, by the way, next year a new spacecraft is going to hurtle towards Jupiter to see whether its moon Europa is capable of supporting life, and it'll carry more than just high-tech sensors. It'll also take a poem and hundreds of thousands of human names, and yours could be one of them. NASA is asking people to submit their names by the end of this year. They'll go into space on the Europa Clipper, which should enter Jupiter's orbit in 2030. They'll be stenciled onto a microchip in microscopic writing about the size of a 10-cent piece, and that'll be attached to a metal plate engraved with the poem. It's a nice poem. It describes what humans on Earth are like, and it ends by saying we need to call out through the dark. So if you Google Europa Clipper names, it's very easy to send your name to space. I just did it before. I could be on an alien marketing list right now. Last week, uh, we discussed fried rice syndrome on Sunday morning. The problem involved with leaving cooked rice and pasta out of the fridge for more than two hours in hot weather, presumably, and letting the bacterium Bacillus cereus, and it sounded serious, crawl all over the food. And listeners unexpectedly had many comments. Let's address some of those and talk about coffee. Dr. Ali Hill is with the Department of Nutrition at Otago University. Morena. Morena, Jim. Jim, we have been keeping leftover rice on the kitchen bench overnight for years without apparent problems. My understanding is that millions of people in Southeast Asia do the same, claims Parkin. Thank you, Parkin. So can we nail this down the the amount of time you should leave rice and pasta out in you know in warm temperatures Ali because there seems to be some dissension here yeah absolutely and there's still instances of food poisoning even if you do leave it out overnight so it's the it's the rapid chilling and cooling it into the fridge that's kind of the the good thing here um one other thing I should have said last time is that if you're thinking about the rice that you have in sushi, because you add vinegar and salt and sugar to it, it means that actually you don't get the same bacterial growth as well. Okay. For people who didn't hear last week and um, aren't going back to listen to it, the rapid cooling, can you just elucidate on that again, please? Yeah, okay. So basically there's this kind of danger zone where you get lots of bacterial growth, and that's kind of like somewhere between four degrees and warmer than our body temperature. So you kind of want to get it through that danger zone as quickly as possible to reduce the chance of bacterial growth. So this is where the rapid cooling really helps. So if you've got um, rice, you can spread it out on a dish and try and make sure it's not too thick um, and just get it through that danger zone as quickly as possible. Okay. Jim, what does Ellie think about ready-to-eat rice packs, please? 
They're absolutely fine um, while they're in the packet and as long as they're before the expiry date because they've been sterilized. But as soon as you open them, then you've got the same issue that you had before about needing to get it cooled if you're not going to use it straight away. A question for Ellie Hill from Julia. Can you freeze cooked pasta and rice and reheat those foods? Yeah, absolutely. So freezing it doesn't kill the bacteria, but it does slow growth. So the same conditions apply. You want to get it fast cooling. You want to make sure that you reheat it through properly as well. I put the rice in a colander and flush it with cold water. The rice cools very quickly, says Di and Invercargill. So if you do this, will it also reduce the chance of, of the bacteria swarming over the rice? I thought this was a really interesting question and it took me a while to find the answer actually. So the MPI doesn't have anything on that. So I had to go to the Department of Health in Western Western Australia to get some advice on that. And it says, yes, you can do that as long as you follow the same cooling things and store it in the fridge afterwards. Francis says, surely the rice is fine if it's enclosed slash covered, i.e. no air, complete with spores circulating. Yeah, so covering it is great because it will stop more spores landing on it, but it won't actually stop the growth of spores already in there. And part of that is because you don't actually get rid of the air. You just kind of cover it and stop other stuff falling in it, I suppose. Okay, so that helps. Jim and Ellie, is that why people wash raw rice until water is cleared? Does it wash off the bacteria? So this is more about washing out the starch, but also any dirt that you get from any type of food. So the same way as you wash your vegetables before you ate them. Um, If you have a dish where you want your grains to be separate, so um, things like curries and stuff, then you would wash it. But if you want something where the rice is sticky or creamy, like rice pudding, then you wouldn't necessarily wash it. Okay. And another follow-up, because we talked about whether we need vitamin supplements in our otherwise fairly well-fed lives. Daryl asks, what about the issue of absorption absorption of vitamins declining with age? Is this a factor here? Absolutely. This is another great question as well. So it can happen. Um, but equally, same as I mentioned last week, there can be some issues with some supplements. So there was some evidence to suggest that if you have take calcium supplements in the elderly, then they might be more prone to heart attack. And Sometimes lifestyle changes are better than getting more supplements. So, for instance, vitamin D, if you spend more time outside, then you could be being more active, which is going to have lifestyle and health impacts as well. But if you're concerned at all about any of your nutrient intake, go and see a registered nutritionist or registered dietitian or even your doctor to get some more help with this. And we mentioned the sugars and fruit purportedly encouraging us to eat more. A texter says, please uh, consider the mood slash craving changes induced by microbes that feed on what we eat. Sugar is likely to be deeply addictive because our feckless microbial tenants trigger our cravings. Yes or no? So the idea here is that the bacteria you have in your gut send signal to your brain, which can then alter your behavior. And because one of the main things that affects gut bacteria is the diet, this could be an area in which you could it could alter it positively or negatively. So it is an area of research that's receiving more and more attention, but I don't know that we have any definite answers with that yet. As for the, as for the DASH diet, 
protecting women from memory loss and cognitive decline, and we concluded, or you did, that the DASH diet is basically eating well in the ways usually recommended. Uh, Gay says, I was on the DASH diet for 30 years, always had high blood pressure and other gut issues, and I was pre-diabetic from all the fruit I was eating. When my GP gave up and recommended a nutritionist, I found that with optimal protein, my blood pressure became normal, gut issues disappeared, and my blood glucose was normal. Please check out Susan Birch, Health Detective Kakite. So do you understand what Gay's saying? Yeah, and, and it's great that the blood glucose has normalized. Um, in terms of the high fruit consumption, high anything is likely to cause issues. So again, it comes back to this everything in moderation idea. I started fasting. We talked about that last week, only eating between noon and 8 p.m. A few weeks back, it was surprisingly easy. I'm sure I can feel the fat burning after 10 a.m. I am definitely eating less food. At least it's saving me money. Can you feel fat burning? This is from John. Um, I don't know. I mean, if you feel good and it's working for you, then stick with it, I suppose. Jim, please ask Dr. Hill about creatine. I've heard some wonders around its use for post-viral fatigue, uh, i.e. COVID, says James. Yeah, so creatine's a chemical that you find naturally in your body, but you also get it in red meat and seafood. And um, Probably the most common thing that you'd associate it with is in exercise. So it can it's used to improve strength and power outputs as well. So there's a lot less research on its impact on cognitive performance, but there is some evidence to suggest that actually it may reduce your mental fatigue in some scenarios, particularly like really stressful ones involving sleep deprivation or exercise to exhaustion. And there was a paper out a couple of months back that looked as to whether it can reduce post-COVID fatigue. And it does look promising, but the research is, again, in very much in early days at the moment. It's interesting, though. As for wasabi, mm. wasabi supposedly improving short and long-term memory in older people, we got asked how much wasabi. I mean, a good question, from, because from memory, the researchers gave people the bioactive compound found in the roots and rhizomes of wasabi. I noticed there are wasabi supplement products online, but they're not cheap either, Ellie. Yeah, so they were looking at five grams of wasabi, so it's less than a teaspoon. And um, wasabi in itself is quite expensive because it's actually really hard to grow. So it needs a specific environment and there aren't many of those. So it needs to be partially submerged in clear running water. So it's quite hard to grow commercially, which is why the um, supplements are going to be quite expensive as well. And there was also the claim that we are sold horseradish instead of wasabi, especially at this time of year, because sales of both apparently increase around Christmas time. And I know wasabi is called the Japanese horseradish. How much difference is there between the two? They are different plants in the same family. So they're in the broccoli family. So they're related to things like mustard and radishes as well. So the nutrients it contains are slightly different. Um, So wasabi has more potassium and less sodium and um, it has more vitamin C and most of the B vitamins as well, but actually horseradish has more folate. And it is because part of the reason is that it's quite difficult to grow, that it is quite often substituted for it. Okay. But if you want to look at improving your memory, would mustard and radish and even broccoli uh, do much the same? I don't know. Potentially. I mean, it's hard to know without knowing exactly what the mechanism is and how it works. So, again, I just stick with kind of balanced diet. <laughs> Yeah. Something new, uh, actually, to talk about and ask you about, and faintly disturbing, 
is a study reported in Neuroscience News out of three medical schools in the US regarding coffee. The conclusions are complex, but to put it simply, regular intake of caffeine might be dampening the brain's plasticity response, affecting, I assume, movement, memory, language and cognitive functions generally. And Ali, my inference as a layperson was if you're using coffee to sharpen your brain through the day, you are maybe inhibiting the brain's own abilities because it is a psychoactive drug. What did you think of this study? Well, I do have to premise this by saying, preface this by saying that I had to have a coffee to get my head around the the science behind this. But essentially, um, it's a stimulant, so it's known to react with certain receptors in the brain. And interestingly, the researchers said they were expecting a positive result, so it had to be beneficial, but they actually found the opposite. And part of this could be due to the way that they tested it. So um, they looked at something that could predict brain function rather than like a direct measurement, which you obviously can't do with humans as well. And they also pointed out that it's a very small study. So they had 16 caffeine users and four who don't, which means that if there is a difference, then there's always the possibility that it could be exaggerated. So it is something that needs kind of further research with it. But the other thing to bear in mind is that they asked about caffeine intake. So it's your self-reported. And when you kind of go down that line, it can be quite difficult to remember exactly how much you've had of something. And it's very much a snapshot. So how much did they have on that day? And then what were their brain responses afterwards? Why do people run these such small studies with the potential flaws in them that you are very adept at pointing out? It's, it's puzzling, really. It is, but it's kind of, it's some way, it's a good way to test a hypothesis or to see if something works. So you'd rather test a trial on a smaller group than you would on like an entire population before you find out that it's um, there's something wrong with it. So I think it's more around the way that it's reported. So if you understand some of these issues that are lying with it, then you can understand the science behind it better as well. If you are sacrificing the brain's plasticity response through ingesting caffeine, then maybe the solution is just stick to two or three cups of coffee a day. Well, they um, they were counting anything. They were looking at any caffeine consumption. So for some people, it was just one cup a day. It wasn't a huge amount. So again, there was quite a big variation in terms of intake as well. Okay. We do, we do need more studies on this, don't we? That's the thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Same with most things in nutrition. And finally, without going over old ground too much, Chinese researchers have published a study in the journal Nutrients which warns against foods which may increase the risk of colorectal cancer in a European population, notably white bread. Simple question. Many people prefer white bread. If your white bread sandwich has nice healthy fillings in it, to what extent does this mitigate risk, do you suppose? Yeah, so they found that alcohol as well and white bread are associated with a higher risk of colorectal cancer. But You've got to remember, again, that association isn't causation. You know, there's an association with wearing skirts and getting breast cancer, but it doesn't mean that you are you wear a skirt, you're going to get breast cancer. So you don't necessarily need to cut it out if you're having it already, and it is about looking at the bigger picture. So making sure that it's part of your diet if you want to include it rather than the sole source of food that you've got. So, again, ultimately it comes down to everything in moderation. Everything in moderation. Is your watchword. And thanks again, Ali, for your expertise this week. Great to have you on. Oh, no problem.